One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, everyone. Thanks for downloading the Third Coast podcast. I'm Katie Mingle. I've got a brand new resound for your ears, but first, a quick invite. Come join Third Coast on Monday, February 11th for an evening of audio stories at the Victory Gardens Theater in Chicago. Find out more at thirdcoastfestival.org. All right, hope to see you there. Here's resound. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Resound. He talks nonstop. My mother gave this to me as a present. Talking and talking and talking. Sometimes if I get really frustrated, I just wish I could change everything, sell him to the zoo, and buy new parents. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio familia we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. I recall her saying to me once, uh, David, don't ever abandon your brother. Growing up, no one fought like my brother and sister. Constant teasing, poking, and tormenting. When my brother wasn't setting fire to the back porch, he was pestering my sister about her flat chest or acne relentlessly. And she gave it right back. So you'd imagine that when my sister came home drunk from, of all things, a bar mitzvah party... My brother would sit back with his hands on his belly and gleefully watch the fireworks. But no. Instead, he intercepted her before my parents could find out, hid her, helped her puke it all out, and put her to bed. The next day, he was humiliating her all over again by twirling her bra on a wooden dowel rod at the dinner table. But when push came to shove, loyalty won out. I'm like, just touch him again and I'll punch you right in your mouth. Nobody can beat on my brother except me. On today's show, we drop in on people wrestling with love and loyalty. From the micro, like deciding to risk life and limb to rescue the family dog. And I foolishly promised that I would get our dog back, even though I knew we would never, ever, ever get this dog back. To the macro, like deciding to turn your own brother into the FBI. They brought out a map of rural Montana and asked me uh, to point out the spot on the map where my brother lived. Stay tuned. Divorce can test family allegiances like nothing else. When veteran radio producer Jay Allison went out on his first post-divorce date, his teenage daughter didn't hold back with her support or her opinions. In fact, she pretty much told him everything she was thinking in a conversation Jay shared with a live audience back in 2004. Seen the living room of the house I've been occupying for several years since the end of my long marriage. During that time, no dates. 
My oldest daughter, Lily, a 10th grader, is visiting. We've finished dinner and are sitting around, and it feels like a good time to mention that I have finally had my first date. As I suspected, she has a flood of questions, which I have decided in advance not to answer. Instead, I start taking notes. Me, did you get my email? Lily, no. Me, I wrote you about how I actually didn't end up alone on Thanksgiving. I had a date. Lily, hey, give me five. Who? Me, well, I'm not telling. I, I, I didn't want to tell you any lies about where I was, but I'm keeping details personal for now, which will drive you crazy. I'm sorry. Lily, come on. Just tell me her name. Do I know her? Is she from here? Wait, how old is she? Just tell me she's over 30. Uh-oh. It's one of our babysitters, isn't it? Ooh. Or wait, is it a guy? It's a dude. You're gay. I knew it. You think I'm gay? Yeah. Are you going to see her again? Oh, I know. It's mom. Me, I knew you'd say that. Lily, did you share a room? Did you drive together? Did you hold hands or was it a one night stand? Does she know me? Why won't you tell me? Are you two engaged? Me, we could be married. They voted to allow gay marriage in Massachusetts. You know? <laughs> Lily, I'm going to kill myself. Where did you meet? Did you pay for her dinner? Is she your girlfriend, Dad? You have to tell me. If you don't tell me, I'll get pissed and do what I did to mom's boyfriend and egg her car. <laughs> Wait, is she in my grade? <laughs> she probably is, oh God. Me, she's not. Lily, does she dye her hair? Does she wear makeup? Is she hot? Does she smoke? Wait, that's an issue for me. Me, you mean you don't like smokers? Lily, not in stepmothers, only in boyfriends. <laughs> Wait, I'm gonna check your caller ID. Beep, 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 beep. Okay, Jens Barawe, who's that? He happened to be my divorce attorney. That's her! Jens, Jens, Jens. So she'd be Jens Allison. Ooh. Is she coming for Christmas? I may have to fight her. What are your intentions toward my father, bitch? <laughs> Me, you're tough. Lily, is she one of the first five people I would guess? Is she Madonna or Britney Spears? Is she skanky? Or is it Allison Krauss? Is it my English teacher? Does she have a gut? Is she good at poker? What's on her iPod? Do you even know her last name? Does she have any scars? Me, you haven't asked if she has a tattoo. Lily, well, does she? Does she know you have a long hair on your nose? Does she work in public radio? Does she know who she's messing with? Does she wear glasses? Is she a Pothead, an alcoholic, a psycho? Does she play games with your heart? Did you watch the sunset over a lake? Did the night watchman catch you hooking up? Does she wear hats? Does she know Britney Spears? Can she get me tickets? <laughs> Is she any good for things like that? Me, it was just a date, you know. Lily, she's not a Yankees fan, is she? Is she one of your old girlfriends, like the freckly one from Indiana Jones? Does she kiss on the first date? Would she like me? Is she taller than me? Me, I'll tell you one thing. 
we drove on Route 35. I'm not saying what state that's in. And there was no one around, and it was late at night and rainy. We stopped the car and turned up the radio and danced in the road. Lily, high five. <laughs> well, as long as she makes you happy, Dad, I can't hate her too much. I can still egg her car, though. Grilling Me Softly was written by Jay Allison for the New York Times Magazine and read aloud at the Neiman Conference on Narrative Journalism. A postscript, Jay is now married to the date in the story and has two more kids. We hear that Lily and her siblings approve. Now are you ready for the next family scene? Here we go. Siblings share your life story like no one else can. As a friend of mine says, they're the only other witnesses to the insanity. But it ain't always easy. From early on, Marissa Skilling's feelings about her brother vacillated between love and hate. Some days she wanted to hug him, and some days she wanted to strangle him. I remember when he was born. I was four and a half. I was waiting in the waiting room, and I was sitting on my aunt's lap, and my dad came down and said it was a boy. And I was so excited because I did not want another girl. I wanted a boy. And then about two weeks later, we, um, we had to share a room, even when he was that little. And I decided that he needed to go back where he came from because as a baby, he never, ever stopped screaming. I didn't understand why he was screaming. And then when we found out that he had a mental disability, I didn't understand. My name is Marissa Skillings. I am 15 years old. My brother's name is Andrew. He's 11 and he has autism. I don't hate my brother. I'd kill for him. But I could kill him too. Here is an alarm clock that if you push it, it tells you the time. 607. He talks nonstop. My mother gave this to me as a present. Thing right here measures the Talking and talking and talking. He'll tell anybody information about any animal, whether they want to hear it or not. She had a snake that was, if it like laid down on the floor and stretched. People can tell Andrew has a disability because of his hand gestures and the way he moves. When he gets nervous, he moves his hands back and forth. He'll walk with his arms down by his side, just shaking his hands. Speaking of sweetie, here's what happened. He likes to crack his knuckles when he's nervous, and he'll keep doing the movement of cracking his knuckles, even if they don't crack. I take care of it. You do not. Chicken legs. Andrew! What? Chicken tastes good. Look! Oh, yeah, I beat the crap out of my brother a few times. You forget 24-7. No, I don't. I take care of mine once in a while, too. You're impossible. He freaks out. Like, if I won't get out of the bathroom and I tell him to shut up, he'll grab a kitchen knife and come over to the door and open the door and chase me around the house with a knife. And I know he'd never touch me with it, but, you know, when he's running with a knife pointed towards me and I'm running, (laughs) if he tripped, then something bad could happen. So I have a curfew, and I basically stay up till then. She's always with her friends. I don't even, she acts like she doesn't live here anymore. I come home and deal with it when I have to, and when I don't have to deal with it, I make sure I don't. Anything else I can bring for you ladies? No, that's it. Enjoy. Thank Thank you. you. Well, it is 
435 <laughs> and I'm with Chanel we're eating at Applebee's and then me and Chanel are probably going to go to Mayfield it's a park where we watch really hot guys play basketball and Cam Newman he's a babe oh, oh yeah and he's really tan, and I really hope he doesn't hear this or his girlfriend. Okay, anyway. <laughs> I started staying away from home around 5 or 6. I'd stay outside or go to friends' houses as long as I could till my mom called me home. I can sit down and talk with my parents, but a lot of times it's like Andrew's always trying to explain something about a cheetah or a jaguar or something in the jungle that has no importance to anybody's life, but... He just loves to share that information, he yakety yak, and if I interrupt him, he gets mad, and it turns into a tantrum, and my mom tells me to wait, and then it's just like, I don't even want to talk to you guys anymore. I think they understand that I don't have them enough, but there's nothing they can do, and they know that I know there's nothing they can do. If I stay away from it for a long time, like going out with friends and avoiding to be home till curfew, then I'll have more of a tolerance for it for the rest of the night. Marissa, she has the guts, and I don't. It's like all of a sudden we just had this transfer. All of my guts went into her. When you're at the age of 11, you're going to have kids, and they're going to tease you and say mean things. It's just a stage you go through in school. I do not stand up for myself. She stands up for me. Socially, he needs help, so I have to protect him and be there for him more than a normal big sister would. The neighborhood we lived in... Like, back at our old house... This kid kept picking on him every day and beat him up. A kid was throwing rocks at me, and I picked a piece of cardboard up to shield myself, and one went over and hit me in the head. I ran in the to the house crying, and my sister had her PJs on. And I just said, who? And he said his name, and then I went and found him. I came outside, and I saw him running up the street, so I chased him, and then I cornered him into a fence, and I slapped him he was scared he was like in tears my face i'm sure was beet red and i was like gritting my teeth i'm like just touch him again and i'll punch you right in your mouth well i'm just glad to have somebody like that even though she can't clobber me if she wants to yeah i was really mad because nobody can beat on my brother except me when we got back from applebee's we came upstairs and chanel and i walked down to the trampoline want to get on andrew Sometimes if I get really frustrated, I just wish I could change everything, sell him to the zoo, and buy new parents. But then the times where I'm actually appreciating things and I'm not in the moment where I'm steaming mad, I really do appreciate what I have. I don't think I'd change anything because this is what I'm used to and this is my life and... Andrew wouldn't be like the Andrew I know and love if he was different because autism is his whole personality. I like Marissa. She's awesome and she's my sister ever. You're my sister ever. I love you. And I hope nothing happens to you. And I'll give my life for you. No, don't kill me. <laughs> Except me was produced by Erin Davis when she was a student at the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies. Erin won the 2008 Third Coast Best New Artist Award. As Ted grew older and was a teenager, I always got the sense, you know, he didn't need people. I'd try to engage him in conversation, and he was, was like he was so troubled by something. 
Blood may be thicker than water, but at what point does loyalty exact too great a cost? Our next story is about one very devoted brother who suddenly and unexpectedly finds himself grappling with this question as he confronts an absolutely unthinkable situation. I don't believe that life is black and white. I don't believe that people are black and white. And yet sometimes we insist on calling people heroes, or more often, villain. And I think that when we do that, we miss the truth of who they were the whole time. And I don't think anyone understands this better than David when he talks about his brother Ted. Well, it might be interesting to start at the beginning, which is uh, talking a little bit about my family. Yeah. I grew up um, in a family of four people, mom and dad, and my older brother, Ted, and me. Ted is seven and a half years older than me. And from the time I was a child, I realized that he was special, uh, mostly, I think, in a very good way. He was extremely brilliant. Um, his IQ was measured at 165 when he was, uh, I think, about 13 years old. And, you know, you were thought to be a genius at 140, so Ted was remarkably smart. Um, now, there was also some unease that I felt at times about Ted. Um, I never felt the slightest unease in his presence. I mean, he was a good big brother, but he would isolate himself a lot. Um, he had very few friends in school, and uh, I remember asking our mother, you know, what's what's up with Ted? Why, why doesn't he have friends, or why does he behave this way? Um, she said that when Ted was a little baby, nine months old, he had gotten sick, and they had to take him to the hospital. And in those days, families weren't very welcome at hospitals. It was like they they saw the the little baby as like a, just a like a, a little machine that you fix, and they didn't want the parents getting in the way. So they were only allowed to visit three times a week for two hours. And it seems like, uh, at least in mom's perception, Ted really lost something during that period in the hospital. Um, I recall her saying to me once, uh, David, don't ever abandon your brother. Uh, he probably doesn't remember the hospital experience, but abandonment is what he fears the most. And Of course, I was very moved by this story, and I said, Oh, Mom, of course, I'd never abandon Ted. At the age of 16, Ted entered Harvard. It should have been a fresh start. Um, when Ted was in college, actually, he was um, terribly stressed he had volunteered for a psych psychological experiment of um, young men at Harvard, and uh, it was an experiment uh, that he was involved in for three years, and it was clearly an abuse, an abusive experiment. It would not pass today's ethical tests for informed consent, uh, respecting the dignity of the and uh, the experiments involved subjecting young men to stress, having their values, their dignity challenged, and seeing how they would react to that. Um, might have been 16. I, I know Mom remembered having to sign a release because he was not yet 18, and her thought at the time was, well, maybe these nice psychologists will help my son with his you know, social awkwardness. And, of course... Uh, the likelihood is that they did him grave damage. When did he start to uh, endorse the views that he endorses now? I think he was probably in his early 20s. I I don't 
you know, again, seven and a half years difference. I seem to remember that when I was in high school, so he might have been in his mid-20s already teaching at Berkeley when he began to talk about, you know, the downside of technology. Um, there was a lot, actually, in the culture about this. You know, the environmental movement was just getting started. Um, also, in terms of his decision to, to leave his job and go out to Montana and try to live off the land, there was a whole movement back in the 60s and early 70s about, you know, returning to the earth, returning to the land. Um, so in some sense, you know, there was a there was a cultural context for it that made, made a lot of sense to me. But it, it seemed like Ted's views had a kind of obsessive quality about them, so that when we would talk, it would be hard for him to, um, you know, look at it from any different way. It's like he had this one way of looking at it. So um, I, I sometimes had concerns that the, you know, there was something overly rigid about the belief system, the ideology. Um, at that point, I was living in Texas. I'd visited our parents, and I remember Mom saying, "Gee, Dave, on your way back to Texas, you you think you might want to stop off in Montana and see Ted?" <laughs> you know, Mom's sense of geography was a little skewed there. It's, right. You know, um, but you know, I, I did really for her. I knew she was very worried, and uh, I, I told her, "I think you know, Ted's okay." You know, and uh, it's he certainly his hygiene was really awful um but that was the, his lifestyle um there were things we couldn't talk about um it seems like more things every year um but in general i thought he'd found a niche for himself you know he didn't seem terribly unhappy and after that visit i remember him writing writing me of just a really loving letter of how much he had enjoyed the visit um he said, you know, David, you seem really happy, and I've never been happy, but it was good to see you in such a good mood. And then uh, little did I know that within a year, you know, as I was preparing to get married, uh, Ted would cut off from me, and that was the last time I would see him uh, until his trial. And at that point, a year earlier, he had killed somebody for the first time. So, when did you start to have suspicions? It interesting part of this story is that it was my wife Linda who first began to suspect. Um, she was puzzled about her brother-in-law. Um, you know, I tried to explain his views on technology, and she clearly, after reading some of his letters, um, had persuaded me to see that he was he was you know sick, that he was mentally ill. She had. It was Linda who persuaded me in 1990 to take some of Ted's letters to a psychiatrist to try to figure out what we might be able to do to help him. Um, but in the summer of 1995, she kind of sat me down and said, David, did you ever imagine, even as a remote possibility, that this Unabomber could be your brother Ted? Now, you know... A lot of young people don't remember, but back in 1995, you know, the Unabomber was really a public obsession. Um, he was the top of the FBI's most wanted list. He, the, the hunt for the Unabomber was the longest-running, most expensive criminal investigation in U.S. history. And here I am in my living room, and my wife's saying, do you think it's your brother? 
Um, but Linda urged me to read the manifesto. Now, the Unabomber, again, a f- sort of first in history. You have a serial killer writing a document to explain why he's killing people, and uh, he anonymously sent it to the Washington Post the New York, uh, and the New York Times, and it was eventually published as a special insert in the Washington Post. And when I began to read it, I thought I would be able to tell Linda that it wasn't Ted's ideology or writing, and instead I began to have this sinking feeling that it just was possible, that it could be him. Over the next three weeks, we really began to investigate carefully ourselves. I read everything I could find on the Unabomber. Um, I'd saved most of Ted's letters, so I had nearly a hundred of his letters saved over the years, some of them touching on the theme of technology. And for weeks, Linda and I would come home from work and we'd sit on our couch after dinner and compare passages from the manifesto with passages from the letters. And, you know, eventually I got to the point of telling her I thought it was like a 50-50 chance and so we really have two questions at this point one question is you know is he or isn't he the unit bomber but the second question is what do we do about this and so we ended up sending some letters to uh, a guy who did forensic language analysis asking him to compare a few of my brother's writings on technology with passages in the manifesto and he assembled a team of people that told us they thought it was a 60 percent possibility that in effect that my brother had written the manifesto and at that point um, Linda and I you know I really felt we both felt um, we couldn't just stand by and wait until somebody else was killed. So we made the decision to uh, contact the authorities. Did that feel at all like betrayal? Absolutely. I mean, I felt... remember the first meeting we had with people from the FBI and they brought out a map of rural Montana and asked me uh, to point out the spot on the map where my brother lived. And, you know, as I walk and put my finger down on the spot, I realize I could be, you know, sealing my brother's fate. I mean, I could be um, sending him to his death. When Ted was arrested, I think on April 3rd, 1996, uh, they found lots of incriminating evidence in his cabin. The most chilling thing they found was another live bomb under his bed, wrapped in a package ready to be mailed to someone. Um, And at that point, I think it was obvious that uh, we had uh, acted for good reason. Ted would have killed somebody else if we had not come forward to stop him. How did your mother take the news? Yeah, I I actually had to go and tell Mom that, um, you know, not only what we suspected, but also the role I'd played in the in the turning Ted in. And I I I knew that she loved both Ted and me with all her heart. What I couldn't predict was how she would deal with this. How would she reconcile it? I was really kind of deathly afraid that uh, I might lose her love when I told her that I'd turned in my own brother. And I said, you know, Mama, I think there's a real possibility that Ted might be 
involved in these bombings and you know her first reaction mother's reaction you know she just kind of blurted out oh don't don't tell anyone you know um and then i had to say well mom i i have told i've actually gone to the fbi i've been worried i i I couldn't live with myself if somebody else were killed and uh i've told them and they're they're now investigating ted and she saw just kind of sat in her chair for maybe a minute and then she slowly got up and walked up to me i was kind of standing in the middle of her the living room and she just reached her arms up around my neck and put a kiss on my cheek and the first thing she said was david i can't imagine what you've been struggling with and then the next thing she said was david um, i know that you love ted i know that you wouldn't have done this unless you uh, truly felt that you had to i like to tell a story from the time I think I was about three years old that really um, sort of symbolized, I think, the way Ted and I interacted. Uh, when I was about three years old, our family had moved from an inner-city neighborhood in Chicago out to a home in the suburbs. Um, it was our first you know, home, house to live in, and uh, it was quite a, a change for me because we had a backyard, and it was a safe neighborhood, and so I was allowed to go out in the backyard and play. And at the age of three, I was very short, but I used to push my way out through this screen screen door we had in the back and play around and, you know, meet other children and have a ball. And I remember the only frustration that I experienced at that time was uh, uh, that I couldn't enter the house myself. I was so short, I couldn't quite reach the doorknob and the screen door to pull it open and let myself in. And so I would, I remember standing out on the back porch, like knocking on the door calling out inside the house, Mom, Dad, Teddy, come and, come and let me in. And uh, this went on for a while, but um, I remember one time my brother came out of the house, so he's maybe about 11 years old at this point, but always a very ingenious person. And um, I saw him fiddling around at the back door, and I walked up there thinking, what's Teddy doing? And what he'd done, he'd taken a, a spool of thread from our mother's sewing kit and a hammer and nail from Dad's toolkit in the basement and he removed the thread from the spool so he's got this bare spool he kind of lines it up on the door puts the nail in the hole in the spool and he's hammering the spool uh, onto the door and I'm kind of puzzled but when he's done he says Dave see if this works and all of a sudden I realized what he'd done he'd made this little makeshift door handle for his little brother David Kaczynski to this day works as an anti-death penalty activist alongside his wife, Linda. Ted is currently serving out his life sentence in a penitentiary in Colorado. David and Ted was produced by Max Young-Rice at the Alaska Teen Media Institute when he was just 19. Max told us he landed this interview simply by approaching David Kaczynski after he gave a lecture at the college library. It pays to be young and willing to ask. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, we're listening to stories about families, love, and loyalty. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Support for Resound comes from the Evanston Athletic Club, supporting fitness and health for the entire community since 1980. More information on the Evanston Athletic Club services is available at chicagoathleticclubs.com. It's hard to imagine a closer or more fertile testing ground for love and loyalty than in the case of twins. You couldn't escape that bond if you wanted to. Writer Austin Bunn was thinking a lot about his twin brother when their mom decided to sell their boyhood home. In the process of cleaning out the basement, Austin unearthed remnants of a dark childhood game. The game was called death. Seriously. My twin brother and I made it up when we were boys. One of us would spend an hour in the basement rigging it up with all kinds of spooky yes. creepy notes written in ketchup like you will die soon and Satan is near. Or maybe just the big kitchen knives or beloved stuffed animals dangling in nooses like my brother's weirdly Jewish plush dog he called Sam Brockamitz. Then the other brother would open the door couldn't see anything. You never knew what to expect. And you walked down into the basement with just a single book of matches. Uh, and you went through the dark very slowly. And you were afraid. At the end, you were supposed to die interestingly. Oh, God. Oh, no. So much to live for. Two years ago, in the early morning, my mother calls me. Mm. Oh, mom, mom, whoa, whoa, Do you know what time it is, Mom? Because I'll tell you what time it is, Mom. It's darkness o'clock. And she tells me that she sold it. She sold our childhood home. The tremors from the disease made the stairs in the house, like, impossible for her. It was all just too much space to clean, to care about. Our town has been changing a lot anyway. New people, wealthy people... I heard the realtor on her cell phone call our house a teardown. A teardown. And my mom asked me to come home and clear out the basement. There were some things down there that she just couldn't bear to see. 
See, the basement, the basement was the universe, dark, windowless, and ours. I remember the beanbag chair and the Tandy computer where I program my very first video game, Vietnam. And no matter what, in the very first scene, the Mama-san stuck you with a knife and you died automatically. Or what about the second long-distance phone line? Remember those? Or my mom's missing books, her copies of The Joy of Sex, The Fear of Flying, and The Naked Ape, which actually had nothing to do with sex and was really boring. And of course, the death game. I should say Colin wanted to be there. He lives in Chicago, but he's not allowed. He has trouble adjusting. He doesn't like to remember who he was or what he did. I think we all have our basement stories. The person below the person. It started in eighth grade, Boy Scout camp, also known as Hell in Shorts. Colin and I both went and spent two weeks watching other kids in our troop light the campfire with hairspray. Whoosh! And drop daddy long legs on the fire in something they called the Pain Olympics. <laughs> Watch this! Sweet! Now see, Colin, Colin was great. Thrifty, reverent, wise. So naturally, everybody hated him. So in the middle of the night, while he slept, the other boys carried his cot out from his tent and set it in the showers and turned on the cold water. I just watched like I watched the pain Olympics and the comets of fire that torched our food when Colin woke up drowning. The next day, when we got back from whittling or canoeing or whatever the hell we were trying to do to grow ourselves up, the tents of our troop were all burned to the ground. Whoosh! Hairspray on plastic. He'd learned it from them. Sensory input disorder, that was the diagnosis. Not, say, revenge? Mostly, Colin was stray voltage. I became his caretaker, like his ambassador to the world. You couldn't just touch Colin, he had to touch you first. Elsie went a little bit haywire. Around this time, my mother started dating again. It was four years after the divorce and Angus came into our lives. Angus was this big-time American studies professor at Rutgers, and his entire field of research was the Jersey Devil. The Jersey Devil, which is this winged goat creature that steals your firstborn and takes them to Atlantic City. Basically, the chupacabra meets Sinatra. Angus looked like David Crosby. He had a mustache, he only drank tea, and he wanted to teach us tennis so badly that he paid us. I'm pretty good at tennis. Thank you, Angus. And my mother, as you could imagine, fell in love. Mostly what I remember is this one morning, Angus had spent the night and he was up making us pancakes with his d sticking out of his pajamas. A thumb in burned grass. Colin and I just stared. That afternoon, we were in the basement listening to the vent when we heard Angus tell our mother that he had fallen in love with this other woman. And it was complicated, but good complicated. And, and he wanted to explore his feelings with this other woman. And then we heard our mother weep. Why don't I just go make us some tea, Angus said. And Colin went upstairs where, where Angus ruffled his hair like he knew who the hell we were. And Colin poured that pot of boiling water into Angus's lap. After that, after the um, police, Colin had a therapist who made him keep a diary, a, a tape diary. And I found it amongst all his things in the basement. Hey, Mom, I'm stuck in the beginning of a 
See, this is it. Except, that's me. To collect my thoughts. He didn't keep it, I did. Right I now, kept it for him. I guess it'll be my diary. And the first entry will be... So that nobody would know what he was really listening to. Hatred. Which was this other record called The Sounds of Horror, which had people getting burned and people getting buried. I mean, terrible things on it. Until the day my mother finally came into the basement and she found her copy of The Joy of Sex and The Fear of Flying and this map that he'd made on graph paper of our high school with all these X's and people's names written next to them. And at the top he wrote, The Death Game. My mother fired the therapist and I could stop making the tapes, finally. And she said, where are the pills? And they said, well, there are pills for him, but there are places too. I don't know what makes the difference, why one person turns out one way and another person spun into the world at exactly the same time turns out another. My twin brother is an inch taller than me. He is a lot angrier than me. Everybody lives above their own cellar. I share mine. The night before Colin left, he came into my room and he said, I'm afraid. I'd never heard him say that before. So we lay on my bed and I told him that the world would be like our game with all these traps and scary things that people put there for you and maybe you even put them there yourself and you just had to walk through the dark very slowly. I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. So I made him a tape walking around our neighborhood with some of the music that he liked and pretending to know things that I didn't. And I found it in the pile of his things in the basement. He'd left it behind. I've got it now, with all the rest of his stuff. Recently, a lawyer called me. Colin hurt somebody, again. And now they want his whole story, the evidence against him. And I told him it's all there, it's in the basement at 17 Walnut Street. Except the new owners? The new owners went bankrupt halfway through their teardown. So now there's just a hole in the ground. Open to the air, and every last shadow is gone. Basement Story was produced by Austin Bunn. Though he writes regularly for magazines and fiction journals, Basement Story, produced in 2010, was Austin's first audio production. Read some of his reflections on making this story at thirdcoastfestival.org. Did you see this dog? I showed her the flyer. I told her it's my dog. And I said, you haven't seen this dog? A new dog? And now, a little levity. To end the show, a story about a small mistake that sets off big hijinks, resulting in a wild testament to a father's loyalty. Several years ago, Melanie Hoops and Ed Herbstman lost something extremely valuable and cute. This is the story of how it was found. We really rashly decided to get a dog. But also, I've wanted a Yorkie my entire life. I've always wanted a small dog to be my unconditional friend. And oddly, I did too. You would peg me as like a golden retriever or like a maybe more of like a Bernese mountain dog kind of person. A husky rescue with a limp. Yeah. (laughs) And like a patch of fur that was burned off by its previous brutal owner who you confronted (laughs) and took dog from as he went back into his shed to get a shotgun or a shovel to chase you. You refuse to back down. 
I really wanted a dog name that ended in O because if he ever ran away or ran somewhere far, it's such a great thing to call out. I had Romeo, I had uh, Bluto, I had Hugo, I had all sorts of things. My friend, who's a French chef, he happened to call and uh, I said, I'm looking for a name that has an O in the end of it. And he said, mm, how about Sumo? We call him Sue, the ancient Sumerian. Sumo the Dumo. Sumo di Dumo. Sumo di Dumo. Sumo P. Hoops. Sumo P. Hoops is his full name. Cinco de Mayo. It was dinner time, and dinner time is generally chaos. We're in the basement apartment of a townhouse in Brooklyn. I took the uh, garbage out. During cooking, garbage got too high. Daddy asked... Daddy Daddy asked mommy if he could take the trash out. Mommy, mommy says, take out this garbage, please. We just given him a bath, right? So we didn't put his collar back on, which is why I didn't hear him at all walk under my legs as I walked out with the garbage, or otherwise I would have heard him. And I walked in the house, closed the door behind me, and we all sat down to dinner. Two minutes later. It's like, well, wait, where's Sumo? Look around, and immediately, I knew. We flung the door open, Sumo. screamed up the, the street. The whole family running whole outside, family. no shoes on, the kids. You go left, you go that way, you go up the street, I'll go down this way. Ran back into the house to get the bike. I to... called the neighbors, and they had uh, friends, uh, their kids on bikes, and other kids on bikes. Just went, they basically just kind of dispatched mm-hmm. uh, this emergency team of people to look for the dog. The sun was going down, and we could not find him anywhere. And the prospect of minutes going by, then hours going by, the longer it goes by, the more you think you're not going to so. I'm looking, hoping he'd pop out between two parked cars or something. I kept imagining him being hit by a car and dead. What I thought... I had instantly, almost immediately, given up hope, which is something I'm not proud of at all, but I instantly thought that he was outside after, when he got outside and we were making steak, he was outside, and someone from New Jersey, and this was just so plain in my head, opened their car door, picked him up, put him in the car, and drove back to New Jersey. I was almost certain that- I remember you saying that. They're probably on the Holland Tunnel right now. I think we're gonna find him. The kids were just incredibly, consistently a source of hope. They were like, don't worry, he'll come back. He'll come back. He'll probably just show up. He's probably visiting friends. Oh, I mean, it was just the sweetest thing just to hear this kind of continuation of like, like, I wonder what Sumo's thinking now. Yeah, wonder what he's eating for dinner. Wonder what they're feeding him. I hope he's having a good time wherever he is. He'll come back. I know he will. And I foolishly, for some reason promised that I would get our dog back, even though I knew we would never, ever, ever get this dog back. Since my dad is, like, really good with this kind of stuff, the odds go up a little bit. Well, it was weird in the morning because there was no sound of sumo. Seeing his bowl and seeing his treats and his toys. And as you walked to preschool, you probably passed one of the 300 posters I had been taping up that night. Right. Everywhere. Everywhere. Beautiful photo of Sumo. Gorgeous. Big reward, which you're not supposed to put up there, but I didn't give a <laughs> I'm not going to be like, well, I want to discourage future kidnappers. <laughs> I don't care about that. Yeah, you really I'm like, I'll pay the ransom. Yeah. yeah. 
Then there was Sunday. I went to animal hospitals, vets. If you see this dog brought in, whatever. And Monday came and I'm on my bike with a little satchel filled with the flyers that I'm taping up everywhere and just putting it over flyers, whatever the flyers were, I didn't care. It could be a missing person. Sidewalk sale right now, this is, I don't care. And I got uh, uh, maybe three or four false leads. Someone called and just wanted to say they felt so terrible for me and was, were praying for me. What did you think about those calls? The phone rings, it's an unknown number. You're like, this is it. And then it's, I just wanted to call because I feel bad for you. Okay, get off the, don't, I'm on my bike. I get a call. Lost dog? Yes. I know something about your dog. She literally said the words, I know where your dog is, but I don't want to tell you because I fear for my safety. She said, fear for my safety. And I immediately went into... You call it cop mode, but I don't. Because cop mode to me is like, you'll tell me or else you're in trouble. No, but For, like your verbal judo. Like right, you're, you right. Know, what it they was, teach you they before, teach you, before you become a cop in the academy. <laughs> it's, I understand you're upset, but this is very important because my kids are expecting me to come home with this dog. He's our family member. He's like our child. So I immediately went to the most emotional place I could. What, what is it that you know? And she's like, oh, my boyfriend is going to, he does not want me to tell you this. I'm, I can't tell you where the dog is, but I don't like how it's being treated. It's not right what they're doing. So I want you to know that. It's like, well, I really appreciate that. There is a reward. I would pay you. She's like, I don't want your money. I don't want your money. I just don't want the people who have your dog to have your dog because what they're doing is not right. And I said, what, what information can you give me? Can you tell me who the people are? She's like, nope. Can you tell me where they live? I can't tell you that. I just know it's in an apartment. And I said, oh, okay, well, that's helpful. In Brooklyn? Oh, yeah, Brooklyn. Oh, so like <laughs> near where I live on, on State and Hoyt? Oh, a little further away from there. So I knew I had to get yes or no's from her because maybe someone was listening to her or something. I didn't have a lot of time, though, because she kept being like, I got to go, I got to go. She finally said, your dog was picked up by a crackhead. No, did she say crackhead or junkie? Crackhead. Oh, we said junkie because when we told the kids... Somehow, junkie was an easier word to explain to them than crackhead. He like he liked junk. He collected junk. I think yeah, is the term. Right. He's a junkie. Instead of like someone collecting thing. junk. Yeah. Yeah. She told me a crackhead picked him up off the street, spent the night with him, sold him the next day for fifty bucks to a guy who gave it to his girlfriend, and that's where the dog is now with his girlfriend and her kids. She said, "I can only tell you the kids' names." are Patchy and Raul. And she said, and sometimes those kids play at the park on Warren and Court. That's their park they go to regularly. She said, oh, and they go there after school, which is, and I looked at my watch, it was 20 minutes till school ends. It was almost three o'clock basically. So I zip over to that park. I hung out till like four, 4.15, nothing. And so I was thinking, well, if this is where they go to the park every day. They must live around here. 
So I went around and looked at all the buildings there and was looking for anything out of the ordinary. I was asking everybody if they saw any new dogs. And then I saw this building that was an old dilapidated building sandwiched very tightly between two new developments. One was completed, a completed condo, and the other was like under construction, luxury condo. And I look, and on the front stoop is a half-full bag of old dog food. And on it, with a pen, someone had written with like a blue Bic pen, either congrats or for your new dog or something like that. It was something like a piece of evidence, an obvious piece of evidence. And all I had was Raul and Patchy. And then this building seemed to be sticking out. And I looked on all the, all the names were all like, uh, Rain had made all the little pieces of paper that with their names on it turned to mush over the years. You could make out a single name. There were like nine different apartments in there. And I walked back and forth, back and forth until I saw a mail carrier. And I went up to her and I said, did you see this dog? I showed her the flyer. I told her it's my dog. And I said, you haven't seen this dog, a new dog lately? She said, this is my first day back after eight months of maternity leave, the mail carrier said. So she wouldn't see any new dogs at all. And I said, well, do you know any kids on the block named Raul and Patchy? And she said, Patchy? Patchy's not a name. And I was like, well, maybe a nickname, Patchy. She's like, nope, sorry. And then I was like, huh, okay, so no Raul? And she goes, well, there's a Raul, but there's no Patchy. His sister's named Patricia. (laughs) Right? And I was like, where do they live? And she's like, I'm not at liberty to say. And then I just took the flyer out of my bag again and showed her. And I said, this is my kid's dog. I have a lead that says Raul and Patchy have this dog. And she looked at the dog. She's like, made that, oh, cute face. Like, oh. And then she points to the building that I was looking at. And she said, they live over there. And I was like, oh, that's where I thought they lived. It's apartment eight, right? And she's like, no, 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 nine, the top floor. And and then she looked at me and I looked at her. And there was this, like, we both knew what we were doing. Like, we went through this thing to protect her, and she just covered her brows. Basically, she told me, violated some sort of federal law. Good for her. So uh, then I did a stakeout. Which included, I think it was two liters of Mountain Dew and a box of snow caps. And a details magazine, because I thought, this will be interesting enough to read while waiting, but not so interesting I'll accidentally miss anything. And so then I just sat there with the details magazine half open, just waiting, 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 waiting. It was a long time. Yeah, but did you have to go to the bathroom? Because I remember you had a two-liter bottle of Mountain Dew. And snow caps. This was like emergency mode. It called for special, special food. Special circumstances. Like your fantasy diet. Yeah. It's your fantasy. It's snow caps and Mountain Dew. Two hours into waiting, out pop Patchy and Raul, Patricia, Raul, their mom... And two older people who I assume were grandparents and then a younger kid, younger than Patricia. And Sumo. Sumo looked dazed and had a very thick white flea collar, very thick, which you should not put on an adult Yorkie. You put that on an adult German Shepherd or something, something big. And... I walked up to them. 
I said, oh my gosh, is that your dog? And they were like, yes. And I bent down and I said, he's so cute. Just to like quadruple confirm that it was Sumo. And I looked at him and I picked him up and I took their leash off his collar. And I said, this is my dog. And I pulled out the flyer, said, this is my dog. He was stolen from me and you got it from someone who stole it. And the older kid, Raul, was twice my size. I'm 5'10". He had to be 6'6", 220", whatever. And he goes, oh, what a good picture. (laughs) And she thwacks him like, shut up. And then she said, that's my puppy. He's a two-year-old puppy. We've had him for two years. I said, no, it's not. He's six years old. He's an adult dog. And then the little girl's like, see, Mom, I told you he wasn't a puppy. Then she whacks with the back of her hand on top of the little girl's head, like, whack. And then I said, it's my dog. I'm not going to argue with you over my dog. And she said, that dog cost me $200. And the boy said, Mom, you said it was 50 Another thwack. I had a $50 bill in my hand. That was part of my tactic, was to, like, wave money in front of her and push her away at the same time. So I took the... I said, I know you must have grown attached to this lovely dog overnight. Here, here's for your troubles and all the things you probably bought. And I gave her $50 and put it in her hand and squeezed it and pushed her away a little bit. And she looked at it, and I started to walk away, and she goes, wait, wait, wait! And I turn around, and she said, you may as well take this. And she gave me the leash. And that was that. That was their life with Sumo. I put Sumo in the bag and started to well up with what I can only describe as exhausted ecstasy. And I had those, and I had Sumo in my bag, and I was riding home very careful with Sumo, holding him tight, and he was dazed and exhausted. He was just laying in my bag. And I got him home, and the kids and Mel weren't home. She was still picking them up from school. And I put him in the house, and I gave him a treat, and I pet him, and I took off that terrible flea collar, and I sat with him for a little bit, and then Mel called. And I hid the fact that I had the dog. And you said, how are you? And I was like, I'm okay. Yeah. And, and I said, how are you? And you were like, I'm okay. Yeah. And I was like, okay, you'll be home soon. And, uh, and you were like, so you're home now? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm taking a break. But so I remember putting my key in the lock, turning the door, and hearing a bark. Yeah. Wasn't your first thought like, Ed got a new dog? <laughs> yeah! <laughs> Immediately I'm like, see, I promised. Daddy's a hero, kids. Come in here. Daddy's a hero. Gather around. I'm going to explain to you why Daddy is a hero. We found him in three days, and, like, Dad had a big story about it. And, like, whenever we met everybody and they said that was a cute dog, he went and told the story of us losing him. And I'm like, Dad, we're shopping. Do you really need to do this right now? Now Sumo is asleep next to us. You are petting him yep. like an arch villain would pet their cat. Yes, it's true. Like, even though you went through 9-11 as a police officer, even though you uh, were there for both of the births of the children and helped me enormously through all that, the fact that you brought Sumo home kind of trumps all of that, I think. Just doing my job. (laughs) Finding Sumo, 
was originally produced by Bob Carlson and Wendy Dorr for Unfictional, part of the independent producer project of KCRW in Los Angeles. Hi, this is ReSound producer Katie Mingle. I'm just popping in to invite you to come join Third Coast on Monday, February 11th for an evening of audio stories inspired by the play Disconnect, showing right now at the Victory Gardens Theater. We'll share some powerful stories specially curated around themes from the play about identity, real and imagined. Visit thirdcoastfestival.org to find a link for tickets and more information. That's Monday, February 11th at the Victory Gardens Theater. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Dojo, a full-service digital agency, on the web at doejo.com. Dojo, we fuel ideas that grow. ReSound is also supported by Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation and the Menaki Foundation. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. Stay connected with us through Facebook and Twitter or by signing up for our email list at thirdcoastfestival.org. If you like what you heard today, consider writing us a review on iTunes or sending us a few bucks. As always, thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.